0: Everyone, I'm Brandon Odo, and I'm Brian Bowling, and this is Critical Care Scenarios, the podcast where we use clinical cases, narrative storytelling, and expert guests to unpack how critical care is practiced in the real world. Hello, people of Earth near and far. It is Brandon back with a turbo today. Let's talk about the SBT, spontaneous breathing trials, the trials we give intubated patients. Uh, to see if they are ready to be extubated. This has been shown fairly reliably to be the best general approach to preparing a patient for extubation. The old days, we would really think about weaning them in the sense that we're giving them this intervention and we need to gradually withdraw it the same way you might taper off a steroid, for instance, until it's barely there. No, no, the vast majority of patients are either better or they're not. You innovated them for some reason. They had pneumonia. They had altered mental status or whatever. And now that's either better enough that they can be extubated safely or it's not. And the best way to find that out is to just test them and see. And really, the less judgment you put into it, uh, probably the better, because a lot of patients may be ready that you didn't necessarily think would be. It should just be protocolized. They should just do it and let you know, hey bed 12 passed their SBT. Anyway, all of that being aside, I think we should look at the question of why patients fail a trial. Because when they fail, they tend to fail in one of a few different ways. Just call them different phenotypes of SBT failure. And I think this is very instructive because understanding the ways in which patients fail helps us understand what's driving that failure, and how you can fix it for next time. So there are probably three general categories that patients fall into. Now, I'm not going to talk about patients who never got their trial or perhaps shouldn't have gotten their trial because they were not ready in other ways. Now, people have criteria that you can typically look at. Most protocols have a, a screen, a wean screen, that uh, suggests a patient is eligible for their trial in the first place. Things like, basically, are they still very, very sick? On a lot of vent support, tons of pressers, paralyzed, whatever. Uh, You probably shouldn't even trial those patients because it may not be safe. And then there are many other patients who may be still somewhat sick, but it's still worth doing the trial, if for no other reason than to get in the habit of doing. Basically, if it's safe to do and it's not going to set you back, then you probably should do it. There's also patients who uh, may or may not pass a trial, but you're still not going to extubate them. A good example is they are still a very poor mental status, and regardless of what their lungs are doing, you, you wouldn't take the tube out. Or maybe they're going to surgery today or something, and it would just be silly and maybe a little bit unsafe to take the tube out just to put it back in. Let's put all those aside. They were appropriate to do the trial on, and now they're doing it, and yet they seem to be... Failing Now, again, there are criteria for what people will teach or at least theoretically use as passing or failing criteria. I think most of us tend to use more of a gestalt sense for how the patient looks. And how they look is going to be one of a few things when they don't look great. If they don't look great after they've been on their trial, it may be because they are Kipnik, so they're breathing fast, and they're breathing fast with low tidal volumes, so fast but shallow. This is rapid shallow breathing and is well captured by the rapid shallow breathing index, which is probably the one objective or concrete tool that we do use most consistently and reliably. Now, no tool is perfect, but it seems to do the best job of capturing a lot of that gestalt in the sense that many patients who don't look good, it's because they are breathing fast or they're breathing shallowly or both. And the combination is nice because you might have someone who's breathing a little rapidly, but relative to that with pretty good volumes and you feel better about that or vice versa. But a patient who's breathing fast but shallow, we would generally feel like is not breathing well. And this is true quote, respiratory distress. This is a patient who off the vent, you might have intubated because they really seem to be distressed. And it probably should make you think that the reason you intubated them is not yet resolved. Often we see this in the patient with lung disease, pneumonia, ARDS, or whatever. Maybe they have a lot of secretions, a lot of atelectasis, um, and it should probably make you think they're not ready yet. Classic example of failure. Now contrast this with the second phenotype, which is tachypnea. They're breathing fast, but their volumes are high, or at least adequate, they're substantial. Their RISB is, is not bad. It's on the lower side. This phenotype is most often seen in a patient who is just restless or agitated or worked up. Uh, and you may see that clinically as well. They may be all over the place. This is often because a patient is maybe confused or delirious, or they simply are uncomfortable and restless and claustrophobic, and you're really seeing it because you held their sedation for their trial. These are challenging patients because it's hard to get the SBT you want to see where they're calm and comfortable, uh, and yet they may be ready to be extubated. You're just seeing you know, CNS effects, not lung effects. So what do you do? Well, you can manage the sedation side. Some people can trial on a small amount of sedation, an opioid, propofol, something else, or the classic tool would be dexmedetomidine, that Presidex, which allows you to generally uh, calm someone down but spare their respiratory drive. So this this move of leaving them or even switching them to dexmedetomidine for their trial when you think they are or you see that they are agitated in the setting of that trial could be a good move because you can leave them on it, not only during the trial, but after. You can use it as a bridge to extubation and then you can uh, try to wean it off or you could even leave it on if it's still useful. That being said, uh, you know you could leave someone on something like propofol, just understanding that it may suppress their breathing and you know put that into context. So if they're breathing fast, but with high volumes, maybe sedation is fair if they're breathing fast but with low volumes on sedation, they may be over-sedated. And you should therefore hold those drugs or lighten them up. And that gets us into the last phenotype, which is true hypoventilation. Low respiratory rate, not fast, low, and low tidal volumes. So this is usually the patient who is sedated or has other reasons for Suppression of their respiratory drive or their CNS, most of the time it's from our drugs. A very common one is opioids, because we all know that suppresses your respiratory drive. And even if you held the drip you were on of something like fentanyl, easily may have built up, and that's the effect you're seeing. Certainly things like propofol as well, Uh, maybe even benzos in high enough doses that's what you should think when you see this picture and then you should think how can we get this stuff off so that we can at least transition to one of the other phenotypes of failure or ideally just have them succeed i will also highlight one subtype which is the patient who has hypoventilation or outright apnea not breathing at all when you first place them on a spontaneous mode that has no timed controlled rate oftentimes this is just due to the fact that on their controlled mode, you were hyperventilating them already. If you check their blood gas, maybe you see that they had a low pCO2, maybe a high pH. You were forcing them to breathe too much, and therefore they have no reason to breathe when you've initially switched them. You've hyperventilated them, you've blown down their CO2, and until that builds up over time, they won't have a respiratory drive, because Most of our respiratory drives are driven by hypercarbia. What do you do? Just let them be apneic for a few seconds and it may be 30 seconds, a minute, even a couple of minutes until they have that drive to breathe. Now that means you have to stare at a patient being apneic for a little while. And the problem is that most of these ventilators not only will alarm, but they'll usually kick into a backup mode and drop them back to a controlled rate if they're apneic for a certain amount of time. So if you think this is what's happening, you may have to do something like increase that apnea window that it'll allow them to be apneic. Otherwise you may never get there, right? The vent will start breathing for them and you'll get back to where you were. Or just undo what you were doing on their resting mode, reduce their rate or maybe even their tidal volume so you're not hyperventilating them. I mean, I think by and large, all of our stable patients, the best rate to have them on is one just a little bit below what they're breathing on their own. So they are largely triggering the majority of their own breaths and therefore setting their own minute ventilation. The best person to set how much a patient is breathing is the patient because then they'll dial it in just the same way you or I are dialing it in. Don't take over control of things for no reason. If a patient can do it, if their brain is capable of regulating their ventilation, let them do it. If you're breathing just a little too much, now it's on you and now you have to pay a lot of attention to it. Yes, don't, you know, drop their rate so low that if something happened, they got a little sedated or something, they would become profoundly hypercarbic. Uh, But, you know, keep it a little bit below where their set point would be. So if you have to make those tweaks and then maybe come back later, uh, that's okay as well. So understanding these different ways that patients fail can help you understand how to optimize them. So the patient who is hypoventilating, we need to work on their sedation. The patient who is just restless and worked up, but breathing, maybe they're ready to extubate. The old pull and pray, I know they don't look amazing, but they're breathing, they're strong. So they're ready and they may be much less restless and agitated, off the ventilator because that's what's bothering them. Lying here with a breathing tube in, with their sedation off, and we're all just staring at them. Just get it out, remove that stimulus and trigger, and they'll be comfortable. Or, you know, some kind of a move like that dexmedetomidine or whatever. But again, very different from the patient who is failing with you know, a high, rapid, shallow breathing index really still has a problem with their lungs or or, or straight-up weakness, respiratory weakness, and they just don't have the strength to get there, that's a patient who you still have to work on their disease, clean up their lungs, or even strengthen their, their breathing muscles. A true wean, where they have to train their diaphragm and their chest to have strength again if they've developed some kind of neuromuscular weakness, or they have underlying neuromuscular disease from something like ALS and it's never going to get better. But these are things that you can understand if you recognize what is happening in front of you. The final point I'll leave you with is if you start checking these things off in your head, I think you'll start to see in many situations, it depends on where you're working, but often the majority of patients are not failing... In this first group it's not because they're not ready because of their disease it's one of these second two they're either not breathing because they're oversedated, or they're worked up because they're agitated because they're delirious because at the end of the day it was us it was our sedation that's driving it in either leaving them over sedated or leaving them delirious when we lighten this sedation so they're in that loop, that, that dichotomy where they're either freaking out or over-sedated and just should be one more thing to remind us that the best place to be is, is neither of those. On the vent, yes. Comfortable, yes. But avoiding that morass and positive feedback loop where we give them a bunch of sedation and that drives confusion and delirium. And therefore, when we try to liberate them, they're either confused or sedated. We can pick our poison, but neither case are they ready to be extubated. Something to think about. Talk to you next time.